Amen. All right, now, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, and I'm glad my child that was in here has left the room because she'd go nuts when I said this. Um, my kids love Scooby-Doo. Uh, it is this thing that we watch all the time. Uh, we, we watched it this morning uh, on the van ride in, a short ride, but we still caught some Scooby-Doo because it's like the official DVD uh, of our minivan. Uh, if you have not seen Scooby-Doo lately, you probably remember it. Uh, I, I think most of us in this room would remember it. It started uh, in the late 60s on ABC and then CBS. And so there's been various iterations of Scooby-Doo throughout the years. It's still going. There's still new Scooby-Doo productions uh, being made, all the hijinks and all the things that they get into as this crew solves mysteries. Most of the time, the mystery kind of revolves around a monster or a ghost um, that's seemingly attacking uh, the town. It seems like it's a monster. It seems like it's a ghost, but really it's someone that is unmasked. At the end of each episode, there's this, there's this person that they, that they track down, that they get, that they come to the end of the mystery. They find this person, they unmask them, they figure out it's just one of these regular townsfolks uh, that, that has some ulterior motive that's doing these things. But there's one Scooby-Doo that really kind of took a turn uh, and that we don't watch in the van or on TV at home with our family. It's called uh, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. So it's a big pivot for Scooby-Doo, right? This is not just a person getting unmasked. This is zombies. So, so zombies in this film. So my kids are out. Uh, they kind of share the same genes as me. We don't do scary stuff. It's not something we watch. Um, but zombies are something, like that phenomenon has caught on like crazy in recent years. I want you to think about movies and shows, The Walking Dead, one of the most popular shows that's out right now called The Last of Us. I'm not endorsing these things. I've not seen them. Um, and there's also tons of information about zombies that's online. I was shocked, like genuinely shocked to find the sheer volume of information that exists out there about how to survive a zombie apocalypse. I, I, and don't Google that right now. Uh, wait till after the sermon because you're going to be there for a while. Um, Look, at the end of the day, no matter how much speculation is out there or infatuation that we have, we know that zombies aren't real. We know that. The walking dead are not among us physically. But what if I told you they actually are? Not physically, of course, that's ridiculous. But spiritually... It's a reality. Living, breathing, seemingly normal people animated with physical life, but that are wearing, in many ways, a mask of life when they're actually spiritually dead. Here's the other reality. That's what you and I were before we were made alive in Christ. Spiritually dead. And that's where Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2. And what does this have to do with God's sovereignty? Two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 46 and saw that there is no God like our God. God is like no other, that he is sovereign over all things, that he accomplishes his good purposes, that he literally declares the end from the very beginning. 
We saw that there is no God like ours who is sovereign. Last week, Ben taught us from Job 42 and helped us see that God is sovereign even in our suffering and that his good purposes are fulfilled, that he's working in ways even when we can't understand them, we should trust him. Today, we're going to walk through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and see these four truths that surround God's sovereignty over our salvation. These four things are what we need to see today in this text. Number one, what we were, what we were. Number two, what we are. Number three, how the change happened, how this came to be. And number four, who is in control. In fact, who was and is and will be forevermore in control. The question for us today is will we see God as sovereign over our salvation. This is Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, and here's Paul's talk about spiritually, those who are spiritually dead. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. These four things that we'll see this morning as we look to this text and see God's sovereignty over salvation. Number one, who you were. This is who you were before Christ. You were dead. You were spiritually dead. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and over the course of the book of Ephesians, in this letter, Paul is writing to this church in a huge city where Greek and Roman gods were worshipped, one of the most prevalent pagan cities in the ancient world. He's writing to remind them of the good news of Jesus Christ and who they are in Christ and how they're to live as followers of Jesus. And the implications for that are vast, not just for their personal life, but also for their family life, also for the life of the church that they're a part of corporately, all of those things. Paul wants them to understand who they are. We need to know this too. Because these verses here that resound throughout Ephesians tell us about who we are. But Paul begins with the bad news. He helps us see how good the good news is because of the place that we were in spiritually dead. In verse 1, Paul writes and says that these Gentile Christians, he says, and you, and he's referring to the Gentile Christians, these were largely comprised of people from a Greco-Roman background, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, not struggling, not mostly good, but with some stuff to kind of iron out, right? 
but spiritually dead. Were they living? Yes. Were they breathing? Yes. But they were not spiritually alive. What does that mean? They weren't actually really, truly human. They're alienated from God. They're not merely in the dark and fumbling in the dark, but look ahead into Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul will say not that they were in darkness, but that they were darkness, that they embodied it. Why? Because of trespasses and sins. What does that mean? What do trespasses and sins mean? It means that you and I have not done some imperfect things along the way, but instead that we have rebelled against God. We've turned in on ourselves. We've perverted what God intended. We couldn't keep his perfect law. We've loved ourselves more than anything. And the wages of these things, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, is death. In verse 2, we can see how we lived. So the result is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. How did we live? Paul uses this language. He says, the manner, the death, and the trespasses and sins, that's the way we used to live. We once walked, he says. That word walk means to live the very course of your life every day. So he's saying their life is literally in death. That they're walking, that they're moving, that they're, they're being, that they're existing in sin. That this is the life or death, rather, that we experienced before Christ. We followed the ways of the sinful world, following the prince of the power of the air. We're following the enemy. This is not the blind leading the blind. This is the dead leading the dead. This is us acting in pure and total rebellion against the Lord. Paul's description for the people that are in Ephesus, that are a part of the church, these Gentile Christians, he's reminding them, this is who you were. You were dead. Verse 3 expounds and says this, stating what it means to live in that. Look, it says we live according to selfish, broken, fully sinful passion and desires, that this is who we were, that we were children of wrath. I, I think it's a really poignant and helpful thing for us to have seen and and just to behold children this morning leading us in worship. There's children here that are in the worship room with us this morning. That language is so aggressive to say that we would be children of wrath. Because normally we think of children as what? Innocent. There's such a thing as childlike innocence, but Paul is confronting the idea that we were good when we were young, and that we just kind of marginally get a little bit worse over time. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's confronting the idea that that happened along the way and that sin developed. But that word by nature, when you look into the text and you see that word by nature, children of wrath, that means from birth. And look, this is terribly unpopular in the culture in which we live. To describe people as born sinners is not something that this world longs to assent to. They don't want to say that that is real because everywhere we look, we see people talking about self-care and self-love and forgiving yourself and loving yourself and ultimately just to live your truth, right? But we must recognize... That our brokenness, our issues, are not such that we merely need to forgive ourselves 
or that we need to kind of blot out negativity in life and remove negative things around us to find life. Instead, we need to realize that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and our only hope is a God that is sovereign over all salvation. A God that is sovereign over salvation. That's who we were, spiritually dead. When Paul writes to these Gentile Christians, he also tells them in verses 4 through 7 who they are. And effectually, we see in the Scriptures who we are. This is who you are. You are alive in Christ. Verse 4 begins with this powerful two-word phrase, right? But God, anytime you see that conjunction, anytime you see Paul place that in a sentence, you're going to see a dramatic, a dynamic shift. There's this radical change. Something big is coming, and it doesn't get any bigger in all of life for us than this right here. He starts with God's character and his mercy, his desire. Look, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, This is his sovereign will to effectually accomplish what he pleases. He shares our state. That when we were dead in our trespasses, we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Amen? In that place. Think about that. That's the place in which we came to experience God. He didn't wait for us to get better. He didn't wait for us to get be worthy on, in any way, shape, or form to perform any act of righteousness. No, it's in our death that he comes in and saves us and makes us alive. This is not new and improved. It's not marginally better. This is altogether new. This is a transfer. In Colossians, Paul would say being literally transferred, being moved from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light and life. We've been taken from death to life. And this is how alive you and I are. This is how alive that we are. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look at verse 6. That we've been made alive. By grace we've been saved. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. And you may say, well, we got a problem Because I'm seated right here. This is where I am. Yes, physically, that's where you are. But spiritually, you are united with Christ. You are in Him. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 1 through 4. This is Paul going to explain and say to us and help us understand Christ is our life. And the way in which we live and the way we're called to think and the way we're meant to operate because now we have been made alive in Jesus. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Moreover, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is the spiritual reality, is that you are in Christ. This morning, you are in here, physically. But who you are, spiritually, is bound up, is united with Jesus. And this is what God has done 
in his sovereign will because he chose to. He made you alive. And for what purpose? What's the purpose for God making us alive in Christ? From taking these people, you and I, brothers and sisters that have long since passed that are in Ephesus, right? All of us, what's the purpose for God making us alive? Look into verse 7. So that, and for the nerdy ones in here like myself, this is what's called a Hena Clause, and it's a picture of a purpose statement. This is the so that. This is the purpose statement of everything that's proceeded before in an antecedent way. What's the purpose? So that we could do more? No. Look at what it says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The purpose is so that God could lavish us with his love. Immeasurable, infinite, boundless grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. This is the reality for you who've trusted in Christ, brother and sister. That God loves you. That Jesus has loved you to the end. And it's this end that there is no end. God has sovereignly saved you. If you've trusted in Christ, you are alive in Christ. Our life is found in the God who is sovereign over salvation. So Paul writes to this group of believers. And and the Spirit is teaching us and telling us through the Scriptures who we were. That we were dead, spiritually dead. Now who we are, fully alive, made alive in Christ Jesus. So how did that happen? How did that occur? Look at verses 8 and 9 and you'll see this happened by the sovereign God and Him alone. No other. This is all His doing that salvation is sovereignly his work, that he is in control of our salvation. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now what is grace? What does that mean? Is it, is it kindness? Yes, but more. It's unmerited favor. It's God's unmerited favor, meaning that there is nothing that we did to earn that on any level at all. In any way, shape, or form. We can see that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. In Romans 5 verse 8, one of the most pivotal and important passages in Scripture, Paul writes, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... That was our state, that we were totally and fully spiritually dead, that Christ died for us. God is the one at work in us and for us. Grace. We didn't deserve it, and yet God gives it to us. It is truly the gift, His gift. And that grace has come to us. We've experienced that through faith. Through faith. And if we're not careful and we don't read this scripture very, very clearly and see what it says, 
we'll miss it because we're prone to think, and people are prone to think, that, well, the grace, that's God's part. That's what he does. But the faith, that's my part. That's what I do. But look at what verse 8 says. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's the and this? Is it grace? Yes. But it's also faith. This is grace and faith. The very faith that trusts in the grace of God in Christ Jesus is the gift of God in Christ Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. To put it this way, you and I were not the one that ran back to the ninety-nine. That is not the story of salvation. It is God who has sovereignly pursued and come after us to redeem us, to take us from death to life. Look at verse 9. We cannot boast. Why can we not boast? Because God has sovereignly done this. You and I did not do this. We're the mere recipients of this grace. He saved us. We were not sinking deep in sin, far from a peaceful shore. We were dead at the bottom, fully dead. And God brings us to life. Therefore, the only thing that you and I can boast in is what God has done for us when we were dead in our sins. God has sovereignly saved us by grace through faith, His gift. This is astounding. This isn't that we didn't deserve this much. We deserve nothing. And God has given us everything in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches, the scriptures say. God's purpose is to love us and care for us and nurture us and help us to experience Him in all of His glory forever and ever to His praise. You and I get to be a part of that. And this is what we see as Paul lays out this foundational doctrinal truth of what it means to come to know God, to be reconciled to God by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. We see this profound truth. Who's in control? Who's in control of salvation? We see who we were, what we were, that we were dead. We see who we are now, what Christ has done in us by the very work of His Spirit, that we're alive. We see how it happened, that it happened by God's sovereign will and purpose. He caused this to happen. Finally, we see very clearly that He's in control. That he is sovereign over salvation. We were dead, but God. He made us alive. This is what our God does. He takes dead things and makes them alive. He's given us grace through faith. It's his gift. And he's truly sovereign over every area of our life. Our justification, making us alive in Christ, but also our sanctification. Look at verse 10 
and see the control that God has ordered, the things that he has placed in your life for the future. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Because here's what happens. Here's what we think. Here's where you and I go. Is okay, I've been saved by grace through faith. Now it's time to get to work. What are the things that I need to do to keep this thing alive? God made me alive. But how do I stay there? What's my job? What do I do? What's my role? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And this is sanctification created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are we created for good works? Absolutely. We just looked at the series of the book of Titus. And one of the largest themes in that letter is Paul writes to Titus in Crete and says, Look, and you're to be prepared for every good work. You're to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus so that you can be prepared for the good works. Absolutely. But the only way that we can even experience and step into those good works is because God prepared them for us beforehand. Look at what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. The works are his too. He's done this too. He's sovereign over this too. Every opportunity for obedience that you and I have, every opportunity to love our neighbor, every chance to minister to anyone at any time, at any place, is prepared beforehand by the sovereign God. Think about that. He's sovereign over our sanctification. And we get to obediently, look at verse 10, walk in them. And you see the contrast of the new life in Christ? This is the way in which we're to walk now. Look back into verse 1. You'll see this. How do we used to walk? Dead. Right? Like zombies. Like the Michael Jackson thriller video. That was, that was what we looked like spiritually. But we've been made alive and now we're to walk in the works that God has prepared for us. This is our great joy that God is sovereign over our salvation. This is all about Him and what He has done for us because He loves us. So what do we do with this? This is profound. These are four points that, that don't in any way encompass or elicit every Deep truth that's in this text. One of the most beautiful pieces of scripture there is. Radically profound for us to understand what it means to be separated and alienated from God and what it means to be made alive and reconciled to God, connected to God in Christ because of the good news of the gospel, his perfect life, totally antithetical to our rebellion, his perfect life. His atoning, sacrificial, propitiatory death for us on the cross. His blood shed for us to wash us of our sin. His resurrection that gives us life. We see it's all Him. So what do we do with this? What do these truths mean for us? How do we apply this? Number one... We're to walk in good works. With the life that we experience in Christ, the reality that we've been made alive, 
man, we step into these works that God has prepared beforehand for us. We were once the walking dead. Now we're the walking alive. So we love our neighbors. We pray for brothers and sisters. We share with anyone and everyone that God has loved us more than we could even fathom. My encouragement to you would be begin your walk this week by, this, by doing this. Read this passage over and over and over again. Look and see the hope, the joy, the mercy, the grace that just flows through these words. This is how much God loves you that you could never get to him and he came to you in Jesus. By the power of his spirit, he's made you alive. So let's walk in these things. This week, all of us can look for ways to walk in the life that God has sovereignly given us. Who can you pray with that's walking through a hard time right now? On the heels of of Ben's sermon regarding God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering, we are so alive in Christ that we can go and give life and share life and pray and encourage brothers and sisters. Who can we encourage this week with the love of God that is immeasurable? Walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And if you don't know what those works are and you fail or you struggle to see those works, then ask the Lord to reveal them to you. God, how would you have me love my family this week? How would you have me love my neighbor? How would you have me love my teacher? How would you have me love my coworker? Ask God to reveal those things to you. Second... We walk not only in good works, but we walk humbly. How can we do that? Because you and I can't boast in any of this salvation that we've experienced. We can boast in none of it. It's the gift of God. This ought to transform us. The more we understand this, the more God sets this in our heart, it ought to make us humble. We walk humbly as we preach the gospel to ourselves and believe what God has done for us. Third, we can walk generously. Look at the way God's described in verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Our God is generous. God has freely given us life. He's made us alive. He's given us everything. That ought to cause us to say, Lord, how could I give? How can I give like you've given to me? This week, pray for and think through how you can give to the needs of those around you as you walk generously. Can you give more generously to the ministries of the church? Is God calling you to that? To walk generously. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And we've been blessed with the immeasurable riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's give life to one another. Let's walk generously. Finally, we can walk in assurance. This passage gives us assurance. You and I can walk in assurance of what God has done for us. Because if it were up to us, we could not save ourselves. Do you know how we know that? Because we've tried. Every one of us We have tried. We can walk in assurance because God is sovereign over our salvation. No height, nor depth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
nothing. What God has done, you cannot undo. We are fully His, and He is fully ours. We can walk in that assurance this week. So let's walk in good works. Let's walk humbly. Let's walk generously. Let's walk in assurance. And as our team prepares to lead us in worship, I want to remind you that after the benediction, that the service is not over. Myself, others will be here to receive you, to pray for any need that you might have. You may come this morning and say, Man, I need prayer for a specific situation. There's an illness, there's a sickness, there's something in our family that's happening that we, we want to pray for. You may say, hey, look, we've been coming for a while and we feel like God's leading us to maybe become a part of this place. How do we do that? How do we, how do we join the church? Man, we'd love to talk to you about that. You may come this morning and say, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted in him and yet I've never confess my faith. I've never made a public profession of faith in baptism, and the Lord's putting that on my heart. I'm longing to do that. If that's you, after the benediction, come. And then also this, the Holy Spirit may be working in your heart today in this way to draw you to the place where your eyes are spiritually opened and you're gifted with grace through faith And you long to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Confessing Him as Lord. To be made alive. If that's you, come this morning. Please come and let today be the day of salvation. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we long... To be in the land of the living. To live, Father. To walk with the life that you have given us. Father, we see through your word who we were, that we were spiritually dead. That we were alienated, that we were severed, that we were separated from relationship with you because of our sin. But you, God, made us alive in Christ. And that's who we are, Father, this morning. So we confess that. Father, we see how it happened. We see that this is your work. That that salvation is all about you. It's all what you've done for us. And Father, we see you in control. Not as playing a part alongside us, Father, but authoring and perfecting our faith our very salvation. God, you are sovereign over our salvation in life. Help us to recognize that, to understand that, to rest in that, that we might walk in good work, sharing the immeasurable riches of who you are with others. Father, we might be humble as recipients of all that you've done for us, for for our good and your glory. Father, would you allow us to walk generously as people who can't help but love others in every way, shape, and form because of how you've loved us? Father, will you help us to walk in assurance, knowing that you came to us, that you pursued us, that while we were still sinners,
dead in our sin. Christ died for us. A love that will not let go. Father, for this, we are thankful that you are sovereign over salvation. Cause us to trust in that. In Jesus' name, amen.